This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we round up the most recent menswear fashion weeks across Europe and take a trip to the Parisian trade fair Maison et Objet. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Now, to kick off today's show, I'm joined in the studio by Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi. Natalie, we haven't seen each other for like two weeks. Where the hell have you been? So I had a great 10 days on the road, starting in Florence, and then I went to Milan, uh, followed by Paris for the Fall 24 menswear shows. So a lot of presentations, uh, attending runway shows, talking to designers. So it's been a full-on but very inspiring, exciting few days. Well, I mean, why are they all back-to-back? Is this just for convenience or is this tradition or like one city to the other? Is this meant to like... That's just tradition. That's how the fashion system has worked for years. And, you know, they're actually quite averse to change and like to keep things quite traditional. So I think this is how it's going to work for quite a long it, time it's, it's to come. It's funny because the design ones are all like they give each other breathing room typically. And it's like, OK, we're just going to Milan for Salone. We're just going to Paris for Maison. We're just going to Stockholm for its furniture fair. So that was purely why I was asking. I mean, yeah. logistically, it sounds quite good. You can kind of roll from one to the other. Exactly. Or drag and yourself. you do tend to travel with other editors and buyers who are going from a fair to to fair and show to show. So it almost feels a little bit like you're on a school trip. So there is uh, this nice form of collective energy I going like on. That. I really like that. So and, and you started in Florence for Pitti Uomo. Tell us, uh, I mean, our, our regular listeners will have heard before, but for somebody that's just tuning in for the first time, give us a quick rundown on what Pitti is. Pitti Uomo is one of the most important menswear trade fairs in the world. They host the, the event at the Fortezza da Basso, which is a huge venue and brands from all over the world. Uh, it used to be primarily Italian brands, but now it's quite a global event. So you get Japanese, British, American brands all coming in. Everyone has a little booth and they display their new collections and they meet buyers and press. The main purpose of this event in particular is quite commercial there's buyers writing orders. But at the same time, it has become one of the more interesting trade fairs that's also attracting press and other members of the fashion industry. Because aside from this commercial side of the event, you also get some really interesting runway shows. And it's a handful of them. So you can really take your time, take them in. And you discover different guest designers every season. Let's go to the actual trade fair. I mean, were there any standout brands that you saw stalls of? that you're like, okay, I'm going to make a note of these people and, and circle back at a later time or maybe we might might see a story on the pages of Monocle. At PT, you find a lot of regular friends of Monocle and brands that are always there and have their regular stand that we love to visit season after season and see how they're evolving their collections and their product. And this was the case this year as well. And I had a great chat with um, the CEO of Herno, for example, and they've been really re-strategizing and revitalizing the brand. They're really known for their raincoats, but now they're offering a full look. It's sort of very refined, very elegant. And what he told me, which was really interesting, was that he sees so much growth in performance wear and technical clothing that it's going to be the category that grows the most in the next five to ten years. So it was interesting to see how things that were purely 
technical and and geared for the outdoors is now being paired with tailoring and, and urban wear and, and the two worlds are, are merging and you could see that in, in a lot of different uh, stands across the fair. So my, my uncle that likes to go hiking on the weekends, he's sort of been ahead of the curve? He's ahead of the curve and he can wear his hiking gear to the city as well or he will be able to find soon much more elevated, more refined hiking gear. Elevated, you clearly uh, know my uncle isn't quite that. So it's nice to hear that he's, but he's got some competition. I want to also talk about shows. I know from speaking to you before, you mentioned Maliano from Bologna were quite good. What jumped out at you about them? Luca Maliano is a young Italian designer. He's from Bologna and last year he won the LVMH uh, Karl Lagerfeld Prize. So up and coming talent, a lot of attention on him. So he was invited to come to Florence and, uh, and do a show. What was really interesting was that he, instead of many other young designers, just try to stand out by being very edgy and and very experimental. What he wanted to explore was classicism and and this classic Italian approach to dressing. So he looked at tailoring, gave it his own spin by the way he deconstructed suits, the draping that he used. And also he worked with more established Italian brands like Borsalino on hats and Keaton, which is a Neapolitan tailor. So they worked together to make a very quite classic hand-sewn suit in the Neapolitan kind of cut. And I thought that was really interesting because it starts a dialogue between younger and older brands in Italy and that's how you keep things fresh and keep things going. I know you also spoke to uh, the team at SS Daily from London and again, a lot of their show was about re-embracing national identities. Does that also feed into a wider narrative around how people are designing clothes and where they're drawing influences from? Just walking around the fair and speaking to the brands, they've really been doubling down on on this idea of national identity. If it's an Italian brand, they're looking at Italianness. And in terms of manufacturing, they want to support local producers. They want to source their fabrics in Italy, but they're also looking at what their parents and their grandparents were, were wearing and trying to revive tradition. In the case of Stephen Stocky Daly, who is a London-based designer, but was invited to to show in Florence, he really uh, embraced his Britishness in in many ways by the fabrics that he he used. There were a lot of waxed cotton parkas, corduroy fabrics, tailoring, but he wanted to have a dialogue between. Italian and British kind of heritage and traditions because you've got a young British designer. He was showing at the Palazzo Vecchio, which is one of the most impressive venues in in Florence. So he was really influenced by all of that. If I'm a, a, a young designer, let's say in Australia, uh, greatest country on earth, if, if I'm a young designer there, why should I care about the work that, that Stephen's doing here in London and his reflection of Britishness? I think... British designers are some of the most interesting, playful, eccentric uh, designers. So it is always worth uh, keeping an eye out on on the talent in the UK, even if you come from the greatest country on earth, Australia. Uh, so that's that's one thing, and it's just a brand that's blending modernity and tradition in, in really interesting ways. There's humor in the patterns of his knitwear. He's dressing a lot of interesting people and building a community around the brand. Let's hear from Stephen Stocky Daly now, creative director at SS Daily, who you caught up with after his show. 
What I found really interesting is that, of course, you were in such a historic Florentine space, right. but that Britishness that we have come to associate and love when it comes to your brand was still there. Did you want to make sure that that element yeah. was sort of a, still as strong and did for you sure. have any specific references for this collection in particular? The core of the collection was kind of based around the states of formality contrasted with states of undress in sort of like public school culture in the UK. It's kind of taking that idea and, and merging it with hypertypical Florentine things, but seeing Florence and Italy through the eyes of E.M. Forster, who wrote A Story of the Panic, which is kind of about a British guy who goes to Italy for the first time. And there are really great, gorgeous descriptions of the fishing village that he stayed in, and so there are like icons and elements of that in some of the like shirting sprinkled through. I also think Florence's pity in Verona itself is kind of like an extension of Savile Row in the UK. And so he really focused a lot on the tailoring. It's interesting to have this kind of dialogue because more than ever, especially being in Italy, I found mm. that designers are really embracing this idea of like national identity, or in their case, their Italianness. Right. Right. Is that something that's also important for you? The venue is very Italian, mm. and it has very literal links to ideas of like Italian democracy and also like Italian art heritage. And to bring, I think, our idea of British heritage into that space is kind of like a melding of those two worlds. And I have to ask you, I mean, just even grabbing a few samples mm. here, the, the fabrications are incredible oh, and, and the tailoring. And I mean, as a younger brand with yeah. fewer resources and the sort of big conglomerates, how have you been achieving that level of quality? I think over a few seasons, we've sort of tried different things and mm. notes, noted what's worked and what hasn't. And also moving our sort of outerwear and tailoring categories to be made in Italy was a big step for us. I mean, make some of the other things in Europe elsewhere, and we make a few things still in the UK. And so I think placing different categories where they thrive best mm -hmm. has probably been a bit of trial and error over the last few seasons. And I think we've kind of found a spot where everything's working, where it's placed. That was Stephen Stocky Daly, creative director of SS Daily. We'll have more from Milan and Paris Fashion Weeks after the break. Every week, the Bulletin with UBS goes behind the numbers and the hype to explain what's really happening in the world of finance. Tune in to the Bulletin with UBS every week on Monocle Radio with me, Tom Edwards, or download the latest episode right now at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Monocle on Design. Natalie, we're staying in Italy, but heading to Milan. So this is the next show, I guess, on, on the circuit. How did your week start? I mean, what makes this different from Pity? It is quite different from Pity in the sense that the schedule is jam-packed with runway shows. So you're not in one big venue looking at brand stands and, and talking, but you're attending these larger scale fashion shows, which is different, but equally exciting, especially this season. Um, as soon as we traveled over from from Florence, the, the first thing on the agenda was the Gucci show. And it was the first menswear show by the new creative director, Sabato Desarno. I mean, how did Sabato's designs compare to the previous, uh, I guess, iterations that have come out or under previous creative? 
creative directors. Is he charting a new course for Gucci? A completely new course, which is what's really interesting and why there's so much dialogue around what's going on in that the brand. Uh, the previous creative director was really known for maximalism, while Sabato is really returning back to the roots of Gucci, to a more classic Italian look. And what I find quite charming and interesting is that where he takes his inspiration from is the streets of Milan. The way that people dress walking around Brera was one of his earliest inspirations. He spoke about looking at old Getty images of, of people just having fun at dinner, going to parties. So he wants to celebrate the everyday and people having fun and enjoying life, which I find is quite interesting and charming. Amazing. So more, I guess, sort of place-based inspiration uh, being drawn there. Were there any other big names that were, were also standouts and, and maybe some small ones too? You cannot speak about Milan Fashion Week without mentioning Prada and it was no exception this season. The venue in particular was so interesting. The show is always held at the Fondazione Prada, but they always find a way to transform it. Last season there was slime coming out of the ceiling. I don't know how they managed that. No, thanks. I don't need to go to that one. <laughs> but this time around, you walked in and it looked like um, a series of office cubicles. You got to sit on traditional office chairs, but underneath the translucent floor, you could see plants and moss growing. The clothes were all about the Prada take on office wear. They, what Mucha Prada with her co-creative director, Raph Simons, have been doing is, is really trying to find beauty in the mundane almost. So you you had a lot of classic uniform-based uh, pieces, a classic coat, slim tailored suits, the tie that was big news of, of the season, what everyone was talking about, that ties are back and, and men are embracing them. And some more playful touches with colorful beanies added to this kind of traditional uniform. Uh, so I thought it was quite interesting more because of what they were trying to say that we're back to this kind of classic formal approach to dressing versus what we were looking at before, which was very casual, very streetwear based. Moving from that, I mean, were there any other new brands that you've discovered that are that are worth uh, us looking at or our, our listeners checking out? One of my highlights of the week was the Japanese brand Setsu. It was also the winner of the LVMH Prize last year and he hosted a very charming presentation, very small scale, very intimate at a little Milanese cafe on a Saturday morning in the sun and what was interesting was that he just dressed his friends in his new collection and asked them to just roam around and hang around with the guests so no one was posing no one was on a podium and you just had to go around and find the models because they were just eating and drinking and hanging out but the clothes are beautiful. He's using a lot of deconstruction techniques. I mean, that sounds incredible. It's a, probably a good thing I wasn't there or else I would have been confused for one of the models. But You I, wish. I digress. I digress. I mean, tell us, obviously that's a revolutionary take on, on the show, but was there anything else that I guess is a standout about their work? He is really known for deconstructing traditional tailoring, for playing around with knitwear. Clothes really have an ease to them, but you always find like a twisted sleeve, something sort of done with it with a bit of a twist. He's really focused on very small collections and really bringing back that human element to fashion, which is why uh, it was so relaxed 
and done in this casual setting. I want to change gears and countries now and and go to Paris. We talked about Milan by unpacking the shows from some of the big Italian houses. I'm assuming there's a similar trend in Paris where the big French fashion houses uh, really sort of headline the week. Any major hits there for you? Paris is really driven by the, the big brands owned by LVMH and caring, and I think they take things up even further. The week starts with the Louis Vuitton show and uh, now with its new creative director, Pharrell, you really get this huge spectacle. And this season was no exception. We went to the Fondation Louis Vuitton, a little bit outside of Paris, so quite a journey to get there. And you're in this huge venue, thousands of people, Hundreds of photographers outside, inside, security, so you can just imagine it's like going into a concert. But what's really interesting is that there's so much energy. You could hear the team cheering backstage. The music was incredible, as expected. A lot of ideas, a lot of different types of people involved, and, yeah, a lot of smiles and joy at that show. People are really, really excited to to be there. I mean, also, I guess there's there's smaller, more intimate presentations as well. How does smaller brands compete or do they even try to compete with Louis Vuitton or, you know, or, or are you just accepting that, hey, one's going to do this one thing that feels like a rock show and one's probably going to feel more like an acoustic set? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And as the younger brands do not compete and there is no point in competing with a brand that has 20 billion euros in revenues and of of the scale of Louis Vuitton. But the fashion industry, there's space for both, I believe. The next morning after the Louis Vuitton show, I went to the headquarters of Christophe Lemaire and we sat down, it was just a handful of us in his office and seeing a much, much smaller collection That was incredibly charming. The cast was a lot of his friends walking around the the office space. And the collection was less about trends, less about accessories, and a lot more about a classic silhouette, familiar shapes that he just perfects season after season. You're speaking to a much smaller community, but a very loyal community as well. And, And there is plenty of space for this type of brands as well. I want to come full circle here. So we've gone... Louis Vuitton, big brand. We went to Christophe's show in, in the Marais, a smaller brand. We're going to come back to a larger brand, a household name, Dior. Tell us a little bit about what they did this week. Dior um, hosted a big show at the military school in Paris in the 7th uh, district. And it's interesting because, like you say, it is a household name, a huge brand, the second largest brand in the LVMH stable. But it was also a very personal collection and it did still feel quite intimate. The creative director, Kim Jones, left um, a book of black and white photographs of uh, the the Russian ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev on everyone's uh, seats. Pictures taken by his uncle, Colin Jones, um, over the years as he had shot shadowed Rudolf in the 70s, I think. So it was really interesting to read about uh, his memories of his uncles, how he discovered the the photographs, and to see he didn't very 
directly translate dancing, uh, dance wear and ballet wear into the collection, but there was a sense of ease and, and flow and, and elegance and grace in, in the clothes. It was like very muted. Most of it was gray. The music was ballet inspired as well. So I thought that was a, a really beautiful show and a great way to show how even with these really, really large scale brands, you do get some very personal touching stories. What's also important to recognise is that this is all taking place at a time when Paris is flooded with fashion journalists, design journalists, designers, fashion designers, furniture specialists, architects. There's this huge creative melting pot. This feels like a nice moment to be in Paris at a show like this, which really is, I guess, summing up the creative energy of the week. Did you feel that while you were there? Absolutely, yeah. You get such an interesting mix of characters, whether it's the photographers, the models, the buyers who are there for very commercial purposes and they keep the industry going. But I I find that really interesting that you also do rub shoulders with some of the design industry, which is what brought you to Paris as well. Yeah, I was there for Maison Objet, which is a big furniture trade fair, probably the second biggest after Salona del Mobile. Like it is massive north of of the city in in a trade hall there. There are also a host of different spin-off events also taking place in the city. So there's Paris Off, which is a deco and furniture show, which is essentially furniture and textile showrooms in the city opening their doors. So you've got all of that happening at the same time. It's kind of funny to also see parallels in theme. Maison I'll be, I'll be honest, they kind of often come up with tacky, kind of daggy sounding themes. So like the theme this year was Tech Eden, which I guess when I initially looked at that, I'm like, what does this even mean? Is this like meant to be seats that like automatically adjust to your posture or, you know, they're like electronically controlled, which I'll be honest, I'm a little bit of a sceptic of. Chairs are a very complex thing to design because they're meant to be very, very simple. And I don't think we need to be adding gizmos and kind of watsits to them to for the sake of it, which is what I sometimes feel like happens when you bring tech into design. It can lead to laziness or putting it in air quotes here, but unnecessary innovation. I mean, that was a big theme that the the people that were invited to exhibit were were meant to respond to. But I think ultimately people are considering this anyway. I'm kind of like fashion furniture is so closely tied to the materials that we're, we're making wares with. It's kind of unavoidable. So too craft. It's like striking that fine balance between making everything with a machine and still having that human hand and that human touch which brings originality and brings individuality to pieces which people I think still crave like you want something that has a story to it so I think I think these are themes that have always kind of been there. Was there anyone who really stand out because I know you've had a lot of conversations during that week and I'm also quite curious on whether you have the same balance between businesses that are very large scale and speaking to big audiences, but also very niche designers and and if they coexist during those fairs. One brand that kind of strikes that balance between having a big presence but also being quite niche is Lemon, which is a South African Dutch company that manufactures all over the world but really works with outstanding designers from across the globe. So I spoke to Kevin Frankenthal, who's one of the co-founders and also one of their designers, Yaniv Chen. We sort of unpacked what it is to be a brand in this global context? How do you operate a company that needs to work at scale but also feels incredibly personal, makes furniture that is crafted with care that you can actually feel and and see when you get there? Uh, So I spoke to them at their stand at Maison Objet. We hear from Kevin first. 
I think that what we do, what I try to do is I try to find designers that are, I'd say, progressive in their nature and the way they approach design. So I'm looking for designers that have got their own point of view, that are trying to put pieces out into the world that have a, a reason for being. Because I think what happens a lot of these days in design is someone sees something, it is on trend or maybe, and they say, oh, let me do a version of that or let me do a different material. We're trying to bring things to the world that are unique with our point of view. It often comes, I'll say to you, I'm looking for a new sofa for my house. Let's work on something together, something that's comfortable. And then I'll design it for my house and what makes me comfortable. And I think that's the kind of whole organic approach. So do we, will we find a lot of your own furniture in your own home? <laughs> like, no, well, absolutely. You have to, you really have to live with the stuff. We have a lot of kind of house parties, which tend to get wilder and wilder the longer we're in Turin. You've got to see how things wear with a glass of wine on them, with all the practical side of the beautiful kind of things that create and design. I think another huge thing about our design process is the nostalgic element. A lot of the pieces here are all reminiscent of a childhood memory and then retranslated into something modern and something contemporary. What we often say to ourselves is the world doesn't need another chair. Why does this piece have a reason for being? We scour the internet and we scour first dibs and see if there's anything like that prior to actually making it. And I think that makes the process much more fun and I'm curious as well, we sort of talked off air about the fact that you've got production in all different parts of the world. Is that dictated by the fact that you're looking for the best people to work with as well and not hamstring yourself? What we've found is that we don't work well with factories that mass produce. We work well with smaller, generally family-owned type of production facilities where the relationship is strong because we don't like to bounce around. We don't have a massive sourcing team, so we, we look hard to find the correct factory for the product that have the correct artisanal skills that we can design with them over time. The factory has got to play such a big part because there's so many ways to make something. And it's a collaboration. It can be a long-term relationship. We find soft seating, for example, brilliant in the UK, marble, brilliant in Italy, woodwork, amazing in South Africa. So it really depends. I'd rather find the right factory for the product. It's challenging. But most importantly is we become friends with our suppliers. When you're, you're designing, are you thinking about those, those factories or where those craftspeople are going to be, or is it uh, something that comes after? At first, we weren't thinking at all, and I yeah. think that's really what challenged us, and especially with our wooden pieces. We kind of thought all the best wooden pieces come from Scandinavia and whatever, and then we kind of tapped into this uh, Cape Malay world of the, the craft that the Cape Malay people brought to South Africa, and they brought this huge woodworking talent which has been passed down from generation to generation, and that's something that we were able to discover through this process but we did certainly desire the piece first prior to actually going on that voyage. I think that we've learned a lot by making. We've made a lot of expensive mistakes. Neither of us are industrial designers so which I think is actually a good thing. We understand design, you know as an interior designer, I'm a graphic designer but as we make we've learned how things work and we spend a lot of time in the factories. It takes a few rounds of a product uh, to, to get it right. Designing by doing for us works well. This show is listened to by a lot of other designers, graphic, interior, architecture, furniture. You've clearly been able to find very good people to work with. Do you have any advice for other people that might be looking for somebody to partner on a a project? Like, what's your 
thought process? Well, I think the most important thing is, especially just from a kind of climate change and that thing, is to is to make sure that you're working with the people ideally closest to you or closest to the people that you would ship to. And then from there, kind of branch out more and more and more. That's kind of been our approach. We found the best woodworkers close to home and then I'm in Turin and now we work with Italian-based manufacturers. My advice from a design perspective would be try not to make too much. It's almost like being in a, a being a musician. So you're going to have an album and on that album there's going to be 12 tracks and you're going to want them all to be a single. They're not all going to be a single, but you're going to want them to be a single. And the best music is forever. That's lately how I've been thinking about it. So I'm trying to say, well, anyone can make a crazy piece that is absolutely beautiful, but it's all good and well if no one can afford it or you can't ship it. It's got to work to some degree. We're learning as we go. We've made a lot of those mistakes, to be honest, where it's just beautiful, but it's not practical, vice versa. So I think my advice would be to really sit down in the beginning and work out what the end looks like from a design perspective and really spend a lot of time on the concept and then take it forward from there. That was Kevin Frankenthal and before that, Yaniv Chen. Natalie, that brings us to a close at the end of the show. Any any final remarks from you? I think just based off of our conversation, my final remarks is just um, how interesting it is that both fashion and design in the same month, two very different types of trade fairs and events, but I think there's a lot of similar conversations happening whether interest in designers increased interest in craft to the theme of nature cropping up all the time and also the need of storytelling both from the industry side but also from the consumer side. It's just really interesting to see it all come together across both our respective fields. I couldn't agree more and that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays and if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well it's on all good newsstands now Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I was joined in the studio by Natalie Theodosi, Monocle's fashion editor. I'm Nick Manise Thanks for listening (laughs) 